if you really have a drive and you put a lot of work behind something, then stopping with something in favor of something else, that's actually really tough because you build up a ton of confidence and a ton of motivation to see something through. And if it turns out not to have the result that you know you need or you want, um, then to let that all go, that's way harder, I think, than finishing a project. Great Gun, and welcome to the Future Podcast. Today's guest is the CEO and founder of the free web-based prototyping tool, Framer. And their mission is to bridge the imagination gap so that you, your team, and even your client are all speaking the same language. In this episode, he shares what life was like as a young kid growing up in the Netherlands who was fascinated by computers, a fascination that developed into a legitimate business that was ultimately acquired by Facebook. Now, if you're into development or programming and navigating the tech industry, then give this one a listen because you might learn something. Also, there's some light swearing in this one, so heads up if you have kids around. Okay, please enjoy our conversation with Kuhn Bach. So I have some disclosures to make. The first disclosure is I'm, I'm late to the web design game. And my team works on web projects, but when, when you're talking all the technology, I see you speaking at these conferences, I'm like, I, I kind of generally understand the idea and what you're doing is important, but for people who, who don't know, first of all, can you introduce yourself and then we'll get into exactly what it, what it is that you're doing today. Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Koen Bok. Um, I'm from the Netherlands. Uh, I uh, run a company uh, called Framer together with my co-founder, Jorn. And Framer is a, is a new type of design tool. Um, it's um, it's the idea behind it is a little bit bigger than just a design tool. It's about how people can express IDs on computers, um, and then mostly IDs in the highest fidelity possible. And I know that sounds a little bit abstract and mm-hmm. maybe a bit Silicon Valley, but you need to have a good mission statement. Um, but when you think of, when you think about that, that's mostly about um, people can express words on computers, they can express pictures on computers, more multimedia. You make videos, you make audio. But the highest form of expression on the computer is kind of interaction. And there's mm-hmm. very few people that can really deeply in- express interactive IDs on computers. And especially in design and modern design, it's a big problem, we think. And um, the fact that mostly only engineers can do that is something we should maybe try and solve. Um, mm-hmm. Or somebody is going to solve it, I want to say. Um, and that would be quite a revolution, I think, on computers, because it will mean that uh, creating interactive stuff or sort of apps, if you will, um, applications um, can go from 30 million engineers in the world to, I don't know how many more people, because 30 million, million engineers that have to create everything for 6 billion people seems a little off. Mm-hmm. So in the biggest sense, we're doing that. Um, mm-hmm. In a practical sense, we're helping designers every day um, to put their interactive IDs um, in uh, um, basically in a prototype and they can use the prototype to sell a project to their boss, to lend the next job, to convince stakeholders, convince the CEO of a product direction, um, test their ID, both on users, but also on themselves. Like you get all these happy accidents if you're prototyping, which is really fun because you run into things you might not have thought of. It's just like 
yeah, it's an accident, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get new IDs. So it's a very creative endeavor. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really what Framer's all about. So typically there's a lot of like very visual design tools out there. And people sometimes confuse us with that. Um, but you've got like the Photoshops and the sketches and the Figmas of this world. And we're really a tool that's really focused on the output being something interactive, a prototype that you can actually use. Mm-hmm. So is Framer... In, um an end-to-end solution up into the prototyping part, or does it work well with those visual design tools? Both. So I want to say 50-50, our users uh, import their work from Sketch or Figma. So that's where Mm -hmm. they kind of begin their visual design. Mm -hmm. And they bring it into Framer to put it together into an interactive prototype. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or some people start from scratch, right, in Framer. Um, It has fairly good visual tools. we might not be as good as like drawing icons as Figma or like if you go really advanced, they're op- obviously more optimized than we are, mm-hmm. uh, but you can do a lot. So um, hence the 50-50 split. Mm-hmm. One of, I was doing a little research and it says one of the, um, let's see here, one of the most popular phrases in the world of design from IDEO states that if a picture is worth a thousand words, then a prototype is worth a thousand meetings. How do you feel about that? Well, I think every designer feels pretty great about that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think it's like a pretty popular uh, startup poster that you see in a lot of uh, meeting rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it embodies, obviously, is that if you and I are both product people um, and we have an ID, then even if we're like super well-versed at our jobs and we might have been working together for a year or two or maybe 10 years, um, when I explain my ID like, hey, Chris, I'm looking to move a box, and if you hover over it, it's going to have this shadow, and it's going to be elevated from the background. And then you, when you move it around, it resorts the list. Then you get this picture in your mind, but is it the same that I have? Like, rarely yeah. so. Mm-hmm. Um, and this can take an hour, or it can take, like, a full week for me to actually implement the thing. And when you finally see it, you're like, ah, oh, that's really not what I had in mind. Um, and that takes a lot of sort of, like, churning through miscommunication if you will so mm-hmm. you put 10 people in a room that like have you know a varying background in product you're going to get a lot of um, miscommunication and um, put a prototype in front of them and everything changes because they can just play with it and you know like sort of responding to a prototype and actually putting it in your hand and and, and observing somebody using your product is both both really fun but also it gives you so so much better information about the experience that you put in front of them and sort of like figuring out if, if it works. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm hearing a couple of things. The, the benefit of prototyping is closing that imagination gap, improving communication between you and maybe the development team, you and maybe um, a lead designer or potentially a client. Now we can talk and look at the same things and we can do it pretty rapidly and make iterations pretty quickly relative to the old way of doing things. Is that about right? Yeah, that's very right. Um, and I think the the secret is that if you don't prototype, you kind of always do. So mm. if you're if you're in design and you're just doing visual design, then you're kind of prototyping when you're implementing it. And this leads to a lot of engineering frustration and and also, to be honest, bad code. Because what happens is like if I'm your engineer and I start implementing your ID based off pictures. I have to come up with a lot of things in between, right? Like how does the screen transition to a different screen? Because you know you can't express it in a picture. So I have to kind of make it up on the fly. And you'll discover a lot of things like as you put the real thing in front of people, 
you'll discover new things and you'll have to go back on your technical design. Um, and then you get confronted by the choice. Do we start over or do we bolt it on? And right. in startups, it's always we bolt it on, um, <laughs> <laughs> which means you're going to get less than ideal code and, mm-hmm. and a bit of frustration around that. So you can also see a prototype as sort of the best spec for product. So the result of that is that it just speeds product product work up, delivers better products faster. Um, there's less friction between engineering and, and design. Um, so it just makes everything better. But the most interesting thing to us, it's, it creates more fun products because people explore, you know, they take more risks because because they feel like they take the risk out at least uh, the implementation process. You pull them up front or you actually dare to take them because like, if you can put it in a prototype, you can put something in fun in front of somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in production, you know, y- you probably think twice about that. Right. Very interesting. There's a lot of parallels to my former life, which was uh, I'm a designer in working in motion design and making commercials. And so we see the parallel here where you do storyboards and then you hand it off to an animator and the animator, like a developer, has to interpret lots of things going on between those frames. And that's the beauty and the gift and the creativity of the animator. But oftentimes they can also go in a wrong direction. So it helps to have references. But um, I guess the question, my next question is this. is I, I think I read somewhere where you kind of describe yourself as half designer and half programmer and a little bit of an entrepreneur. So if I look at that middle part as the wall that separates it, do you see more people building prototypes coming from the engineering development side or more from the creative side? Mm, I want to see equal at this point, Mm -hmm. but it it depends a little bit how you interpret it because I think every engineer prototypes, I think just that the way that engineers prototypes is they're kind of exploring and doing research to figure out what the best path to implementation is. And then sometimes they find a great path and they continue to build on their prototype and it becomes the real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think designers prototype more in a throwaway fashion. Um, and this is one of the interesting tooling problems to solve. Like maybe we can bridge that gap too. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you think about it, one of the things that has to be solved for prototypes is that if you always throw them away, it seems like the engineers can continue to build on it towards production if they choose to, then designers should maybe able to do the same in the future. And that's obviously a very interesting problem for us to think mm-hmm. about. Can you expand on that? Like when you say throw away, if I, because I think a lot of our audience is going to be from the design creative side and they're going to be listening to this. Like, well, what, what do you mean throw away? So I, I've come up with the design. I'm going to step into some prototyping tool like Framer. I'm going to work on it. Are they, what is their mentality when you say it's kind of more of a throwaway mentality? Well, it depends like when you consider the job being done. Mm. So obviously if you're working for a client and the client picks like, you know, do we stop at the storyboard uh, or the wireframes? Do we, do you make a sort of like a prototype? Do you deliver the full end-to-end app or do you do some part and like our engineering team picks up the rest, like front end, back end, if you will. Mm -hmm. So when I, say throw away that might not actually be a bad thing it's like you know you get all these things with the prototype that you otherwise wouldn't get like really good spec really good communication so definitely worth it what would make it extra awesome is that if you feel like you're on the right path with the prototype that you can smoothly kind of blend it into towards production that's a very interesting area to explore and would make you know would add an order of magnitude more efficiency even to the design process mm-hmm 
So if I understand this correctly, a lot of designers, their job seems to end at the end of the approval of the prototype and they go on doing whatever they do. And then the engineers are left making this thing, if that is the choice. And perhaps if the designers stayed more involved and kind of saw it through and then that would inform decisions in the future where maybe they'd make smarter decisions. Mm, kind of. I think a lot of really great designers see the mm -hmm. whole process through because even for the end product, they'll have to do user testing and actually go back and prove that whatever solution they come up with actually mm -hmm. works as it's implemented. So if you want to take like responsibility for a great design, obviously you close the feedback loop and you show using data and user testing that like it is solved uh, and we can go to the next thing or we can make the next version of, of this thing. But Basically, with um, what happens with the prototype is that you can kind of give designers more freedom to pull that forward because you can already test your ID on real users before you have to build it. So that you kind of dare to take more risk. You can communicate stronger about your ID or just you don't have to explain it anymore. You can just show it to people and they'll be like, hell yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that gives you sort of an ability to close the loop on it sooner and go into the implementation phase with way more confidence. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay, I think uh, now I think I understand better exactly kind of how this works and how it fits in the design ecosystem and, and, and digital products. So I, I want to take us back a little bit. So um, I, I know that you had this other agency called Sofa that was sold to Facebook. But before that, what is it that you wanted to do in your life before starting an agency and then now starting a company, uh, a startup? What, what yeah. were you like, like when you were a younger person? So I was always very interested in computers. That, mm -hmm. that shouldn't be a surprise. Um, but my dad uh, was actually an uh, an advertising uh, guy, of course, kind of like I'm from the Netherlands, so mm -hmm. I want to say madman, but that looks very different here in a small <laughs> small <laughs> city. Now, so it definitely doesn't look. Maybe sometimes he thinks it looks like the series, but from what I remember, <laughs> it was uh, a lot less uh, glamorous. Mm -hmm. um, but he was in commercial advertising, and I I mostly got very inspired by. Um, he's a copywriter, but he was always using in a creative team, so he was working with creatives that would be great illustrators or uh, graphic designers um, and they would have these folders with them so sometimes they would hang out for dinner and I I could join or like they would come over to our house and I could peek in those folders and look at the concept work and I just felt like that's what I want to do I want to create these ideas and see them come to fruition right see them through because I knew that like what's in those folders it would eventually be on like a huge poster or like in a commercial or um, and that got me really excited that you can like, like, how do you take something from what's in your mind to something real? And I was never really a good, like graphics artist. I'm, I'm a terrible writer. Um, so when I found out that people, um, use this uh, computer in between to kind of do get good at that, well, computer doesn't help you being good at writing, but it can help you to be more creative at drawing and like expressing these sort of like visual ideas. And once I figured that out. Uh, I was kind of hooked. Um, and it started with visual design, Mac Paint. Mm -hmm. What year is this? And how old are you? Yeah, so this is like a, when I'm maybe like 10 or 12 years old. Oh, okay. Uh, that's when, yeah, my dad has a, had a Mac Plus. Mm -hmm. I, I discovered Mac Paint. And yeah, it was great. We had like in, uh, because he was a copywriter at a printer at home. And back in the day, like uh, all this stuff was really like what you see is what you get. 
um, you put like a pixel on the screen and the image writer puts a pixel on the piece of paper exactly where you put it. So mm-hmm. it's a lot of constraints, but also a lot of creative freedom. So I was just making logos and like you know, my own type style and like my own fonts. And that was fun because like, for example, sometimes I wasn't really good at school. And then you get like, um, I guess you have it in the US too, right? You have to like write the same line. A, a yeah, thousand times. you get in trouble. <laughs> so, yeah, you get in trouble like Bart yeah. Simpson, right? Yeah, yeah. Been, uh, Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I took that as a reason to develop my own font um, because I thought, well, then at least, um, you know, I can print the line a thousand times. It took me way more time in the end than actually having to write it myself. But like I it was see. way more fun to create a font. So all those kind of small things, like I took them as creative assignments and um, and, and, and played with computers to, to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, now, seeing that your dad is in the industry, in the creative industry, and had a computer at home for you to kind of toy around with, you, you must have been one of very few people, actually, who had access to such tools at, at, at that age, right? Because those things were expensive. The laser printers that your dad was probably using was thousands of dollars in the size of a small refrigerator. Because I was, yeah. you know, I was around 17, 18 years old when that was happening. Yeah, I mean, it was... Um... It wasn't what you sometimes hear that like that Bill Gates could only study in a computer because they had one on school and like it was it was a bit more accessible. So a few mm-hmm. like people that, you know, that could make computers useful in their work, they definitely would invest in one. But it wasn't like there was one in every home. Right. Um, I think the most interesting thing on it looking back was that the Mac was a really bad computer to learn programming on. So I got hooked on that very late. Mm. Um, and I think some other people around me got like Commodores, which arguably were way cheaper computers, mm-hmm. but they were so much easier to pull apart and start programming games on. So sometimes mm-hmm. I, I wonder what would have happened if um, if I had one of those instead of a Mac. Would I also be as visual or would I be a badass programmer, actually? Like somebody who's really good at engineering, which... I'm so so to be honest. <laughs> well, I'll let you know. I also had a Commodore 64 and an Amiga, and I'm oh, I'm nice. not any better at programming than than the average human being. So, who knows? All right, we have our natural <laughs> proclivities, right? But I, I I just wanted to ask you something about like parenting and how people are raised in Amsterdam, right? So, um, I was just thinking about this. Like your dad has work, so he's got to use the computer, and you're a 10, 12 year old kid. Is it encouraged for you to mess around with his computer? And is he concerned that, hey, you're going to delete his files or you're going to do something that's going to mess it up? Yeah, that solved kind of itself because he liked buying a new computer once in a while, but he didn't mm-hmm. like to switch computers because, well, he didn't like change. Okay. <laughs> so he kept this old Mac Classic, I think, for 15 years, even while we oh had my a new gosh. Mac. It's like, He's like, oh, it works fine for me. The printer still works, so <laughs> why would I? Well, why would I switch to the new one? So that right. kind of solved that. But my parents are very nice, as in like they're my friends, so I can talk very straight up with them. Mm-hmm. And I had a very um, interesting conversation with them once, where they asked, like, um, "Hey, when you get kids, um, what would you do different? What do you think like we should have done different?" Like one of those conversations, okay. which was, you know, I have a few of those. A year i'm lucky enough right like to to really get to that level with them mm-hmm. um and one of those conversations ended up being that um i told uh, my dad that the one thing that like he couldn't know but in hindsight maybe should have known is that the, the computer would become my superpower and mm. wasn't some hobby and he always made it feel like a hobby 
that I couldn't do if I weren't doing well in school, which I right. almost never was. Mm. Um, so the computer was this thing that was between, he used it as like kind of to push me to do what they thought was good for me. Whereas in the end, it's kind of the thing that made me, uh, that opened doors for me and sort of like got me to express myself creatively. And that's not something that like, I think you can see as a parent. I think it's, uh, it would be so hard to do that when I get a kid. Um, so I don't blame them for that, like by any means, but it is a very interesting sort of effect. If you look at, if you look at life or the world, like these things happen all the time, you know, the thing that you don't expect to have the biggest influence actually turns out to have like, you know, a huge effect, like huge butterfly effect. So I think that was an interesting conversation. Mm. That sounds really cool. So you don't have any kids yet? Okay. Well, I have two boys I myself. Hope. So if you I just pay attention, yeah. yeah, if you pay attention to what they're interested in, it becomes pretty self-evident. The The hardest part is to put aside what you think you want for them. And then if you can get rid of that, then it's it's very clear because they'll, they'll tell you. They'll tell you in so many different ways, right? It's whatever they're doing yeah. in their free time, what they, what they obsess over and are just pining for. Unfortunately, for a lot of boys, at least in this era, it's like playing video games. And we're trying to figure out like, is there a career for you there? Is this what you want to do? Because we're okay with that. Just, you got to let me know. Yeah. But you know what I find there is, for example, even when I talk to friends about like influencers, like the mm -hmm. way that people say that word, it, it, it has a connotation and a tone of like, you know, people look down on like doing that, like having, uh, I don't know, like putting on, uh, like really freaking out over like makeup on a YouTube channel or like dressing up really nice and making a picture on your holiday to for, for your instagram followers but i think it's i think it's a really it's one of the how do i explain this i remember when i was into macs like and programming and i saw the ipad come out i was impressed by the device but i thought shit the days of like pulling your computer apart are over right the creative endeavor is like being taken away and i felt like when i now look at sort of what kids do with being influencer making uh, tiktok movies and stuff it's actually like a great resurrection of creativity. It's not about like programming, but like every kid is a great photographer and like they're makeup artists and they're like into fashion in some way I don't even can understand. So I think that that ended. It's in a way the same as like the conversation that I had with my dad. I had no idea that that would be the creative endeavor that would replace pulling computers apart. And maybe this one is better because it's so broadly applicable. So much more people get into that. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that made me really happy in a way, but I also noticed that a lot of people don't think that they think it's a waste of time. And that maybe relates to what my dad thought about the computer as a hobby. Right. It's a hobby and it's a time waster and there's nothing at the end of that. But mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people think about that, about like young people that are trying to be influencer, but they'll be like great movie director, commercial right. producers, storytellers in a way that we we can't even comprehend. Mm -hmm. I think with all kinds of tools and platforms that are emerging or new, there's the potential for it to be bad and there's a lot of potential for it to be good. It just depends your, on your approach to it. But it does sound like you have a pretty open mind, mind to these kinds of things. And I'm also trying to fight my own bias. Like, what is that TikTok nonsense? Everyone's just shaking their butt the whole time. But there, then there is this undercurrent and um, layer of creativity that, all these very young people are going to be exploring this is just going to be the standard in a few short years yeah 
Mm-hmm. And what you're noticing, what you're saying about video games too is, is this is maybe a bit closer to what we're trying to solve, but the problem that, that would be great to solve for computers, obviously, is that like, I think the highest form of creative ideas or expression is maybe video games. Like creating video games is so hard because it's like everything comes together, interaction, sound, graphics, storytelling. It's it's the most, maybe like VR video games will probably be the pinnacle, but like mm-hmm. somewhere around there, it's like very few people can do that well and, and it's super hard. And I think the sort of the ability, if you look at like what 500 million people in the world can do or like something like a big group in the world, they can get up to Excel, right? That's kind of the, where it stops. Like if you're lucky, they can operate, they can do words, they can operate the Canvas, PowerPoint, they can do some Excel. And like, how do we get beyond that? That's where like a new revolution is about to start. How do we get closer to people being able to create computer games? And for us right now, obviously that problem is like kind of prototyping. Like, mm-hmm. How do we get a little bit beyond that? But I think in some other shape or form, I see TikTok doing the same, right? Like, how do you how do you get people to create like interactive video stories, put that together? To me, it's it's a bit the same across a different angle, more on the consumer side. But it's about really good content creation that's about after video, it's about to get interactive because mm-hmm. that's the obvious next step. And if you want to predict anything, then you could just see, right? Like it's text messages, it's like audio, uh, and then like it becomes like, pictures and then like people are creating videos and now the videos are about to turn interactive so to me it's an amazing moment to see that happen because like the interactive part is what really drives me Mm -hmm. Um, and i can't wait for everybody to jump into that and i think we're even a little bit behind on it Mm. okay now speaking of uh, next step uh, i want to know from you being a 12 year old playing around with your computer and making art and your own fonts getting into trouble at school uh, before you launch Sofa, like what's the next big milestone for you? Yeah, so that must be learning how to program mm-hmm. because, like, at this point, I'm I'm a graphic designer making, um, I guess, like mostly CD covers for friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I started to get into websites a little bit because that's better than, I mean, normal. Like, I lived in the flower area in Amsterdam or like in the Netherlands, so it was either like planting flowers, which was actually sometimes pretty cool in the summer too. Mm-hmm. Uh, versus making websites and websites making websites was good money and, and very fun so I got into that um, I got into Unix like so I I don't even really know where I started but got into Unix and Perl a little bit so some hacking but finally what got me really into computers is that yeah this is so if you're if you grew up at my age in the Netherlands or in Germany probably in France too um, and you're a boy you want to be a DJ because um, <laughs> it's how you get the right kind of attention. Way better attention than making logos in MacPaint. <laughs> so it also means that there's a ton of competition. But I uh, bought two turntables when I was 16 and I tried to DJ. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the art of that's like fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but getting gigs is, uh, is sales. Um, so that was less fun. So I kind of pivoted into VJing. So I thought, well, if I can't be the DJ, then the guy that's like next uh, next to the DJ um, is doing like uh, creative sort of screens. And there's a lot of stuff to invent there. And it's it can really add to the vibe. So why, why don't I try that? And I did that. And I, I found this app, Modulate. It's like made by a few uh, people from Switzerland. Um, and it had a Python interpreter in there. And that's honestly like 
my first real programming that mm. I put in there. Uh, I made like a little beat counter that switched the videos and, um, and Python was a pretty powerful language already. So um, yeah, that kind of led one thing led to another and I started to make websites in Python um, and suddenly all that stuff became super powerful. So that's when I really deeply got into programming and I kind of got hooked because the first time that you make something interactive, and this is, I think, where like where I'm so big on it, like the first time you make something interactive and you put it in front of somebody and you, you see them use your thing, then it's hard to go back. Time for a quick break. We'll be right back with more from Kuhn Bach. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're a small business owner, this is for you because running a business is just plain hard sometimes. Endless to-do lists, employees to take care of, and your ever-present bottom line. So first of all, kudos to you for staying on top of it. Now, I want to tell you about Gusto. Gusto built an easier and more affordable way to manage payroll, benefits, and all that other really exciting stuff you love to do. They help over 100,000 businesses with tasks like automated payroll tax filing, simple direct deposits, free health insurance administration, 401ks, onboarding tools, you get where I'm going here. You name it, Gusto does it, and they keep it easy. They also really care about the small business owners that they work with. And I can attest to that because I happen to use Gusto for my own business. True story. Their support team is attentive and helpful, and since money can be tight right now, you'll even get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com future and start setting up your business today. You'll see what I mean when I say easy, because it really is. Again, that's three months of free payroll at gusto.com slash future. Welcome back to our conversation with Kuhn Bach. Okay, so what year is this that you're 16, learning Python and wanting to be a VJ? Yeah, probably like 15, 16. Mm -hmm. um, but what year in the world? Like, Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, probably like uh, I'm born in 82 so that's like I'm pretty bad at math so like just before the year 2000 yeah. like uh, the late 96. 90s 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Really bad. Really bad music. Good in clubs, mm-hmm. but bad. bad. And uh, still pretty pretty early in the web years, like still kind of like web 1.0, like crazy weird stuff happening, right? Before Macromedia, Shockwave, or Flash, and all that kind of stuff. It's pre that, right? Or right around that time. Yeah, because that really got me hooked, Flash. Yeah, I, I can imagine it would. Okay, so programming then, uh, at that point in time, I, I guess your calling wasn't totally clear because it was just a way for you to express yourself visually and to, to build things, right? And yes. you, you, you want to build stuff and you're like, oh, it's using Python. Okay, I'll learn that. Is this just you teaching yourself or are you enrolled in some kind of class where you can figure this stuff out? Yeah, teaching myself. Yeah, there, there isn't really, I mean, there was a Python book, but it was also not really how I learned. Mm-hmm. Like I, I kind of got motivated by the problems that I wanted to solve. Yeah. And I also remember that like I tried at least 20 times before I got anything done. Um, so it was really just a sheer will to kind of figure it out by myself that got mm-hmm. me there. Mm-hmm. Not so much a, a book that I followed, which in hindsight, sometimes it could have been smarter to <laughs> to have taken a course. Or a Python is actually a Dutch language. So like it's invented by a Dutch guy, oh. uh, Guido van Rossum. And so there were actually some sort of courses available, like mm-hmm. by uh, like a bunch of like hobby freaks, people that weren't like mainstream. Um, mm-hmm. But there was some Python stuff available back in the day. I just never really found that out, I guess. Mm-hmm. Were there a community of programmers that you could hang out with and just get some help? Not at with? all. No, no uh-huh. I knew very few programmers. I knew a few people online that were into web design. Um, and I hung out with them over this Mac application called Hotline, where mm-hmm. you would also download all the legal stuff. Yeah, it's 96. I probably won't get jailed for that anymore, but <laughs> you needed to get Photoshop somehow. Right. It was like a Mac, Mac app called Hotline, and then you would download it with uh, ISDN very slowly and then try and mm-hmm. install it and like put in some code. And, um, uh, yeah, and there were a few people there that I met that were also really into this stuff. So I hung out with them a little bit, but it was mostly by yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's still a pretty big jump, but I, I did want to just mention a couple of things. Like you were talking about once you build something and you see it move and interact, I know it's digital, but it feels like so much more. I remember in, in the mid to late 90s, I, I worked on my first website with my older brother who's a software developer, and it felt magical that we had these things that were on a screen that were totally non-interactive and then he would push it out and we would refresh our browser and then it was live and it was really amazing and it was a total paradigm shift for me in terms of my thinking about this because most of the projects I had done to that point once it's done it's done it's gone print like a cd cover or an editorial spread or even a video that we would produce it's done you don't work on it anymore but something it, it felt like alive for some reason like cuz it's never really done. You just keep updating it or changing it. And that, that was really cool. I think that's kind of like what you were talking about, right? And then you get hooked on that. Yeah, but I think that's that even came a little bit later where you mm. can keep updating it and it's mm-hmm. actually live and accessible to the world. That's definitely also a point where I, I, I really remember figuring out what an IP address was and that my computer could expose a web server that anyone in the world could visit. And I... I just sat down for an hour and thought, like, is this really how it works? Like, that's pretty amazing. Like, this is like a phone number that anybody can dial for free. and They can right. see whatever stuff I have on my hard drive. That was that moment for me. But mm. I'm talking about the moment before where 
I went from making a print on my dad's laser writer, which is mm -hmm. cool, and I showed the picture, which is my logo, to my dad, and he goes like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm busy." Um, <laughs> but like, that was that was really cool, right? Like, I could yeah. shoot, show to friends at school, and and I could get like a response, and and I imagine that like the best version of that's like you're a truly amazing artist, like. Uh, Vincent van Gogh, well, no, mm -hmm. not as in, in his time, they wouldn't really respond that way. But if right. you could see people responding to his painting now, like that would be the most extreme version of like a visual response. Yeah. But it's nothing compared to getting people to play with your app and to click on your stuff and, and kind of finding their way through this thing that you designed. And that's mm -hmm. really what got me hooked. It's, and it wasn't even about like it being able to update fast, but it's just like, you coming up with some story or some ID that others can explore in different, there's not one shape of it. Like it's interactive. They can play with it. And, and I also know that like, it's so intense because it feels so bad if they can't figure it out. You take right. it so personal, right? Like that hurts. Right. That's why nobody likes user testing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So how does this get you into launching your agency? Yeah. Um, so, Basically programming for a while, making websites, um, doing some VJing. Well, that wasn't really going anywhere, but it was fun <laughs> for a while. Um, and then finally, I ended up um, university. I, I, I went to, um, I did communication science, which is like, um, I looked at a few art academies, but that's very classical in the Netherlands. They're super good, but they mm -hmm. weren't really busy with like, well, they were busy with digital in the way that it's like digital transformation. It's kind of like mm -hmm. figuring out what to do with digital um, instead of um, being very sort of like forward thinking with it. So I decided, well, I'll probably be in advertising. So I'll do like communication science. And then also like I wanted to go to university because I put a lot of effort into actually getting that diploma so mm -hmm. that I could. So then I thought I would use it. Um, and as a side gig, um, or as like sort of like a job on Thursday evenings and, and Saturdays, I uh, ended up in uh, like a retail Apple store, one of the fake ones here. Um, there weren't like, really, <laughs> yeah, there weren't like the official Apple stores, right. but they were trying to to make them look real. Um, and then like selling iPod covers and um, uh, and, and Macs. And, um, but at some point, um, I thought, this retail system that we have to use is, is really shit. Um, it's really not fun. Um, and it's slow with some windows thing over VPN. And I started asking around, like everybody in my class in university, obviously was doing some retail job and everybody was like not having fun with that like app. And it's not really supposed to be fun, but you can remember if you were playing SimCity and you did everything well, you got a nice report at the end of the day, like how well you did. And that definitely felt like a lot more fun than, the software that we had to use to get our work done. So I felt like, hmm, maybe we can do something here. So I started to build like a point of sale system. Um, and I found a really good buddy that also worked there that was pretty technical and uh, it helped me out. And we tried to sell it back to the company, which obviously didn't work, but was the first time that we got into like real application building. Um, but the thing that kind of kicked off the agency came after we met, we met this, um, oh, he was really a kid back then like a 16 year old guy from the US who made um, an app called App Zapper. And uh, it was a very small Mac app that would allow you to delete apps from your Mac. And it had like, uh, it was really fun to use. It had a little sort of gun 
uh, icon. And uh, one of my friends here in Amsterdam made the icon that eventually ended up starting the company with, with me. So that's how I got to know him. And he sold this, um, this software online through PayPal. And he had a little sound on his computer that every time he sold a copy, five bucks, and his computer would do ching-ching. Yeah. And he would join us for the summer, like in Amsterdam, and um, we would just write software. He explained us a little bit how Objective-C worked, that that's a lot harder than Python, mm-hmm. so I, I could use some help. Um, and then that annoying ching-ching, like we heard it like multiple <laughs> times a minute at some point. <laughs> and I just started to figure, we should we should try and do this for a point-of-sale software. Um, mm-hmm. And at this point, um, so my other co-founder, Dirk and Jasper, and later on, Hugo, um, we decided, yeah, well, we can try. Um, and that's kind of how the real agency, well, it wasn't really an agency, it was more like, you know, like a real startup started. It's like we started selling that point-of-sale system online, and it took obviously a year or something to remake it and then sell the first copy and once we sold it we had like we drank all the money the same night but we had to refund the next day this person uh, was running like some some i don't know i think it was like a fitness studio and it was totally not appropriate for their for their use case but eventually it started working a little bit and I think we had no idea what like and like being an entrepreneur was or starting a company. We just wanted to make super nice looking software, and that it definitely was. Mm-hmm. Um, so it started to work a little bit, and that was kind of how we got the thing off the ground. A bit of consulting work on the side still um, until we started a few more apps, and we basically used the money to just fund building the next app um, until we had like a real company built around it with like probably thirteen people. And we're making some revenue where mm-hmm. we had four apps or three apps um, for the developers out there, versions and Kaleidoscope. So Subversion app and a diffing app that I still love using myself. Um, and this is also kind of the beginning of my love for tools. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's really nice to work on tools. And that, that's kind of how the company got, um, got to exist. Okay, so a bunch of questions along the way here. The first one is, you said you went to school and you thought you were going to go into advertising, which is what your dad does for a living. How did he feel about that? And was he like, okay, fine. Kuhn's going to go and do advertising. It's following my footsteps. Or was he like, no, no, stay away from advertising. It's a horrible industry. No, wasn't like one way or the other, to mm-hmm. be honest. I think at that point he started to um, figure out at least that I was always going to start a company. Okay. Because that that seemed pretty evident. And mm-hmm. I, I really, like, I never really had any anxiety about that or, like, second thoughts. And I really enjoyed, like, having a group of people around me that were, like, at the same level, probably a lot better, that, like, we, you know, you could learn from each other. And, and I think, like, you know, having that group and accomplishing, like, your first release and your first sale, um, that's something I was very sure of that I would do for a long time. And I think mm-hmm. my dad could see that very well. Mm-hmm. Um, the like whether to go into advertising or not, I don't think he was. Yeah, uh, well, he told me I was a bad writer, so that was at least very honest. <laughs> <laughs> Tough love there, but you you already knew you weren't a great writer, so it wasn't like Dad, you're breaking my dreams here, right? No, no, I yeah, did. yeah. Okay, so what's interesting to me is you know you you finish school, you work in retail for like a split second, and then you're like, oh, I see a need here, and I'm going to develop software. And then you spend, I think, what, like a year making this until it's like something that you can actually sell. Are you essentially unemployed for a year at this point? Ah, this is the secret of um, the Dutch government sponsoring students. Um, So 
um, basically in the Netherlands, well, it's, it's kind of like a student loan that's uh, funded by the government. Um, and you get like 500 euros a month, which back then in Amsterdam, it wouldn't really get you much, but right. just enough to maybe like with a little job on the side to pay for your room and, uh, and some Thai food. Um, and that was great. So that's basically how we did it. Some, the downside is you have to pay it back if you don't finish your school, which I totally mm-hmm. had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was still completely worth it. So that kind of funded the whole first year of um, Raymond profitability, uh, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, where we where we started to make enough money to, I mean, this is like, you know, we're all paying each other like 500 euros a month for like years. So um, it wasn't, um, weren't getting rich of it by any means, but it's um, it definitely did help for the bootstrapping. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So the government gives you money as long as you stay in school and finish school. So is school also free? Uh, it's a thousand euros a year was back in the day. So oh, wow. probably That's now it's so like so affordable. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. In Europe, um, basically university is kind of free, mm-hmm. although Dutch people won't agree. They think like the 2000 euros is still pretty expensive. Wow. That's, that's incredible though. Okay. So, um, you're, you're making apps and, this is where I'm a little confused because you say you're a half designer, half programmer, and a little bit entrepreneur. Where when I'm listening to the story, it's like you're 100% entrepreneur and a little bit of a designer and a programmer, because every time you were looking for a problem to solve, you would just invent a solution. And when you got in trouble in school, you just tried to figure out how to use a computer to make it easier for you, even though it wound up being a lot harder. When you were interested in VJing, you're like, I'm the just going to learn of a Python. Great entrepreneur. <laughs> That is very true. It's true, right? And then you work in retail, kind of a fake Apple store, and and you're like, this could be a lot better, and you just invent a solution for that. That sounds like a thoroughbred, like 100% entrepreneurial mindset to me. Yeah, but I think, you know, I think a lot of people have that. I think the the difference is is that, like, um, you got to find one one or two of those things that you actually see through to the end so that you can build something around it. Because I think a lot of people start those projects and for every one that I saw through to the end, I started like at least 20 that I didn't. Right. Um, and that's ultimately the, what makes an entrepreneur, like what makes somebody an entrepreneur versus not an entrepreneur. It's not that you were born like that. It's just like, when do you get your first project that you start finally over that finish line? Congratulations. Now you are one. Mm-hmm. And that can, that can happen when you're 80, I think. Right. So do you have advice for people who maybe are on that 19th project that they still yet have to finish and how they're going to find that 20th one that actually is going to be done? And then, okay, now you've got your one. From there or like? Well, like they're still in that, like, I'm just trying lots of things and nothing is clicking. Should I quit? How do I know that this is it? Or am I just wasting my time and this is a foolish pursuit? No, because like that motivation came fairly natural to me and it's really hard to... Like it's so dependent on who you are, where you get your motivation from in that Mm -hmm. regard. So you you can read like all these different blog posts about like, how do you, how do you finish a project? Like sometimes it's procrastination. Sometimes life just gets in the way. Sometimes you secretly don't want it, right? You're just doing it for the wrong reasons. But then many times suddenly you find the right setup for yourself and it just clicks and off you go. And Mm -hmm. I think everybody that like, that that made a project like see through all all the way and like at some point everybody has one right they probably can't explain you why that one versus not the other ones like it's, it's right. hard to even repeat if, if you got there mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, w- I wish there was like a, a recipe, but I, I don't think there is. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about the secretly not wanting to have it finish? That says something to me, and I, I just want to get more of your thoughts on that, like where some people may self-sabotage or for whatever reason, they're just making up a thousand reasons why they don't want to finish it. Yeah, I don't know if I have a lot of, a lot of wisdom around that. I, mm-hmm. I think it's just more something that like um, you can kind of, is one of these things that sometimes you have to be on, to get honest about that. Like, I mean, if you just feel bad about a project never finishing, then at some point you can start digging, like, is there a reason? And yeah, maybe I just don't want it. And you can just like get that as a conclusion and then stop and do something else. Mm-hmm. And this is actually like stopping is an interesting thing for entrepreneurs. Like if you're, if you really have a drive and you put a lot of work behind something, then stopping with something in favor of something else, that's actually really tough because you build up a ton of confidence and a ton of motivation to see something through. And if it turns out not to have the result that, you know, you need or you want, um, then to let that all go, that's actually a very, that's way harder, I think, than finishing a project. It's like quitting a project that, that you right. love. Right. That can be really tough. Okay. Um, when did Facebook become interested in your agency? And tell me what that was like. Yeah, so when we were making uh, Mac apps, we really put a lot of effort in uh, into making them really look pretty. And mm-hmm. um, we were constantly challenging each other to to make more weirder, elaborate interfaces, interactive interfaces. So um, one of the beginning projects that was kind of the, that kicked off um, uh, startup was um, together with this guy that kind of t- taught me programming, Austin. Um, we were uh, making an app. He was making an app together with Jasper, uh, one of my co-founders, where uh, we were thinking about, uh, or they made a, a disc burner program, like to burn CDs. And we got so weird about it that um, we made like all this smoke come out of the window while you were burning a CD. And then we found somebody who was like actually a physics PhD or major, and he programmed real smoke that would like uh, respond to your mouse. So you had like this smoking window on your Mac while you were burning a CD. And that was ridiculous, <laughs> but so much fun. Yeah. It actually only ran on one GPU because he needed like all that horsepower to just like run the smoke and it would like kill your battery. But that, doesn't, that didn't really matter. We just were having so much fun. And there was right. there were only a few other Mac companies around um, that were doing, maybe not as crazy as we did, but um, making really, really good Mac software. Um, mm. I want to say like Panic, that's still in, in that game, right? Making transmission, like the most high quality Mac software you can imagine. Uh, CSS edit with uh, Jan van Bochout, which um, like I'm like I'm very lucky that he now works at Framer as well. Um, he made CSS, you know, his CSS edit made, you might have used as a web developer. A lot of people learned how to use CSS from that. Mm. Um, he had like um, the guys that end up making uh, to do web things. Um, I forgot how to recall back then, but there was like a small set of like really high quality Mac app makers that really drove that forward and and apple was pretty good at like um seeing that um and so they gave us a bunch of apple design awards and that was um pretty rare for a company in europe just like you know a few kids basically uh, but we flew out to uh, san francisco a couple of times for the wwc and then you know they put us in the front row and they gave us a uh, stake 
uh, we had no money so it was amazing like i think yeah there's one of these nights where like they take us out for dinner and we suddenly halfway realize that if they stick us with the bill like we can't get home <laughs> <laughs> were you really thinking that like oh my god this dinner's so expensive if we have to pay for this yeah this guy from apple he invited us for dinner in sf and he takes us like to some restaurant le colonial or something mm-hmm. and we're there and yeah we're there with eight or ten people and halfway during dinner i look at the menu i'm like wow we can't afford this like this is like twice the budget that we have for the whole week we're staying <laughs> next door in some hostel and uh <laughs> luckily, luckily apple picked up the check because they were yeah. doing it so that like on the next day we would get an ada and this is sort of the thing that they do with it um mm-hmm. but uh, yeah that was um that was uh, not the the most relaxed dinner that I sat through in the end. <laughs> but that must have been very cool and surreal, right? Here you guys are, uh, some young people get, flying to San Francisco to get an award from Apple, sitting in the front row. Oh yeah, we felt like rock stars. I yeah. mean, it's very it's a very nerdy version of the Oscars, but it definitely felt like the Oscars to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was great, and I think what. I mean, obviously, because we won a few of those, like some people in the industry that were really good designers, they started to look at us and say, hey, they, they seem to really know what they're doing, right? Like all their stuff looks looks really good. And mm-hmm. I still think, like sometimes go back to our old website, there was some really cool stuff there, like making icons and the interface was a real art. And yeah, for that reason, somehow the stars were aligned in some some weird way that some social media company was trying to figure out what design meant for them and started looking for great designers and design companies. And that's how kind of ended up with us. Um, so how that works is that this is like Facebook's not so big. So we get an email from, uh, from Mark and honestly, I just thought that they were, uh, they were messing with us. So uh, I, you know, I, I called out uh, the guys. I'm like, come on, this is not funny. I'm trying to work here. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it turned out to be him. So yeah, yeah. jump on the on the phone, and then uh, fly. He flies out to uh, um, to uh, Palo Alto, mm-hmm. and um, we weren't really planning on doing that. We weren't even like thinking about that they might want to acquire us. But uh, yeah, when we got there, like it was pretty. Um, they made it pretty clear what the goal was, um, and then it wasn't really hard, I guess, to convince us uh, to join mm-hmm. uh, because that was pretty. Somewhere between intimidating and 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 a huge opportunity, so we just right. decided to to join the team. And I think the main reason, uh, I mean, there were many reasons, but like the coolest reason, I think, for us in hindsight, was that the design team at Facebook was like maybe eight people, and we would mm-hmm. add another eight people. Um, also, which something we didn't know is a bunch of our friends got hired at the same moment. So Mike Mattis was suddenly in the same onboarding room that we knew uh, for mm. a while. We we're like what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. And it turned out that they bought like all the good designers that we knew. Um, so that was an extra surprise on top of that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, yeah, we joined Facebook and we worked there for two years. Mm-hmm. What what year is this that you joined? And how old are you? 2011 to okay. uh, uh, 2013, like mm-hmm. 27, 28. So done Sofa for five years and then, uh, mm-hmm. or six years and then like two years of Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you able to disclose the financial arrangement? Uh, no. What, 
Okay. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure I can, but I won't. Okay, <laughs> no problem. Okay, so two two years in, do you, are you fulfilling or have you completed your obligations? Usually, when people buy a company or the team, there's some contractual obligations or something like that. Oh, you mean like uh, that you uh, vest fully? Yeah. Were you fully vested at that point? No, that's always four years. So it's a, uh-huh. it's a big decision to leave sooner. Yeah. Uh, two years is enough to realize what uh, that you like small companies better than big companies. Yeah. And that's not to say that I didn't like Facebook. Uh, I had a rough time. I almost got fired once. So um, that was pretty rough right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you kind of have to navigate the structure of a large company like that, where also everybody is from Ivy Leaks. And I had no idea what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to, like, there's all these small cultural differences in in Europe versus the U.S. that you might not realize because, you know, you all grow up watching the A-team. So you feel like, yeah, you know, <laughs> to get each other. But, yeah, like, I mean, all that, like, there's all this sort of U.S. stuff where... I mean, there's a lot of like ex-Microsoft people in Facebook. So suddenly there's letters and career plans and mm-hmm. developments and promotions. And that's really not how we were thinking. So um, that could have been better. <laughs> that got us uh, maybe a bit in, I don't want to say trouble here and there, but like I'm really making it a point in the current company to um, to maybe educate young people a bit better about like, you got to imagine that like people... If you're from Europe, from like uh, some university, you work for a startup or two, you're not you're not like um, uh, kind of uh, Harvard educated or Stanford educated to know how to make the most out of your career. Where like, all right, two years junior, four years senior, director, I'll jump to a VP. It takes like four different companies to get there to accelerate that path. You have no idea. So mm-hmm. um, that was one of those things that you kind of run into and definitely something that made it less fun and and but once you figure that out which you can do pretty quickly then you can use the company and um sometimes work on projects where you feel like the whole company is behind you and you can do pretty amazing stuff like the first version of facebook messenger was really cool to work on and mm. uh even the first ads were, was kind of fun to work on uh it was fun to work on video ads and learning about uh, how commercials are being made and like bringing Super Bowl ads to the Facebook platform. I know that most people probably don't enjoy that part of Facebook the most, but it was it was fun to work on in hindsight. So, yeah, I mean, at both sides, but it definitely made me realize I'm, I'm a startup person and startups are hard. So you better do another one while while you're younger instead of uh, later. Right. Um so after two years, I also had the opportunity to my, my old, not my old co-founder, but somebody who worked in the previous company with me, Jorn, um, and who kind of led the design team there, um, said, all right, why don't we do it together? Mm-hmm. And he'll hate me for telling this, but just when we said we'll, we would leave, he got also like a special, fa- all these companies have special bonuses. So he got the special bonus and he had to wait for another year to get it, but he already told me he would leave. So he felt so bad that day. <laughs> Um, so he had to wait a year to join you? No, no, he decided not to do it. So he had to forfeit. Oh, oh mega no! Bonus. <laughs> oh, he lost the mega bonus. Oh wow! Okay, 
that that speaks a lot about who you guys and your spirit and your nature. You're you're kind of Europeans jammed into this American way of like climbing the corporate ladder and the way things work, and it wasn't a good fit for you, right? That's a really nice way to say it. it also, just we made our minds up, and uh, you know, like you want to do something super fun. Um, we're not going to stop working, so that yeah. wasn't the goal at all. Mm-hmm. So, is this then when you got, you you re- return to the Netherlands and start your company? Yes. So this is, I think, uh, one of the most interesting things with an opportunity to not work for a while. Well, that didn't go over so well. So after like two months, we were already like trying to build some new stuff. It's, it's pretty addictive to to start building and coming up with new ideas. But but we got this problem that most Facebook, ex-Facebook or ex-Google people have is like the world looks like, you know, a big mobile photos or messages app. Because that's all that matters in these companies. Like, that's the biggest application on mobile is like photos, messages, and, and videos now, too. So, basically, we only think about that. Like, how are we going to make the next big messenger app? Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes a few, <laughs> a few months to get off that high and figure out, okay, what's really a problem that you want to work on? And that was, if you suddenly, if you have an opportunity to think about what you want to work on, you got to come up with something good. And that's, that's not so uh, easy. So we had, a, we had a few really long discussions about, okay, so what do we pick as the next problem to work on? And the thing that we settled on, I still think is a good idea for others to copy, is like we settled on a problem that we wanted to work on for a long time. Um, because a lot of startups pick a problem from an, from an Excel sheet or from like some thesis by investors or like from whatever the hype is, um, because like it's a good opportunity or like the total addressable market is ginormous or any of these reasons. And these are good reasons. But if you work on a problem that you want to work on for 10 years, it's pretty hard for somebody to beat you yeah. um, because you're just going to continue going. Mm-hmm. And we thought, all right, if we can pick that, that's a pretty like that's a pretty big weapon to have. And that's how we got to like tools prototyping. It's also because we saw that problem manifest itself at Facebook, like trying to express things that you couldn't do in Sketch or Photoshop. Um, but it was definitely one of those things where we said, well, this problem is going to stay interesting for a long time. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Very good. So take me to current history right now. So here, here you are. How big is the company? What are your challenges? What, what's the thing that you're most excited about working on? And what's the future for you? Yeah. So um, we're now around 80 people. Um, so it's it's um it's big I, I never had a company this big so mm-hmm. uh, well i do now but i've never had before i worked like i had you know big teams in facebook but it's different when it's your own company yeah. um, and that isn't always easy but i think we're in a phase where like uh, we're making it work quite well like um, you can tell that like there's people are fairly happy and like we're putting a lot of new stuff out um so it feels like we're in a really good place with the company um the way that we started was very small right and we started kind of as like a, a technical prototyping tool very much based on javascript and as an addition to another application um and that worked really well pretty quickly so a lot of our friends at facebook picked it up um and then google and started to make quite elaborate things in in this very relatively simple application because we nailed a few things like direct feedback and, and no cost to get started you would just do a new document or new project and you would be designing right away and um 
that was that was really fun for a while. I think the next evolution when we thought, okay, so what do we build next? Was like, all right, so we're an accompanying app, so we need to uh, we you know you always need to use as next to Sketch or next to Photoshop. Um, so we should probably build our own canvas. But um, we knew the guys from Sketch really well, so a Dutch person, uh, Pete, and we knew it took him a nine years to develop that. So we were thinking, okay, so how how do we make sure that like we don't like get nine years into like trying to develop this before we can you know meet that threshold? So we started to focus on the things on the canvas that are more important for building apps, like layout, um, hierarchy, and stuff like that, and not really focus on like the best way to draw an icon because that takes a long time to do like really good um, Boolean operations and like uh, vector networks, like like Figma is exploring. Um, we were really on like okay, so responsive design, uh, layout stuff, flexbox, um, that kind of stuff is very important on the canvas. So we spent a lot of research there and like built a pretty good sort of web-based canvas um, for the version. And that kind of became the second iteration of Framer. And it's really going well, lots more people were were, were, were using it. Um, and then we had to kind of make a big decision because um, we were also running into a limitation where before we could make somebody successful in Framer, we had to teach them how to code. And that is um, another thing I really like to do. So I'm, I'm, I realize, or the, I, I'm very aware if I can get some people to do, to teach them, or if I can teach them JavaScript. And I think we're lucky enough to say that, like, there's probably, you know, tens of thousands of people that learned how to do JavaScript through Framer. Although we got them starting CoffeeScript, but that's a difference. So it's close enough. Um, they that was like career changing for them, and maybe they would have learned it later or, or before or like in some other way. But still, that feels super good, and um, that was that was the really great side about like being a fairly technical product that we could push people um, to acquire a new skill that's super transferable. The other thing, though, is that we also wanted to build a big company. And not a big company in terms of like big in size or big in revenue. Well, yeah, sorry, investors. We have to get super big in revenue, obviously, too. <laughs> but um, we want it to be big in impact. And then obviously all the other things come with it. And what's right. the biggest thing in impact is not really about if the problem really is about like how many more people can you express sort of the highest fidelity IDs in computers, interactive stuff then is the best strategy to teach them all how to program because god no i tried i wrote like a hundred books on like how to adopt react and coffee script and even while we got to a good pace there is the trick is it to figure out if there's another way to get people to build these things outside of having to learn how to program and surely i'm not saying like you know no programming at all it can also be can always be a mix but there must be more ways to combine things like uh, programmatic and, and direct manipulation together to make it more natural for, for, for people to express ideas on computers. And mm. I think really that's what we're that's what we're motivated by and going after. Mm. So we had to make a pretty big move there. Um, and you'll still find some people that liked our previous approach way better. Um, but we are going after solving the other problem 
for how can we change the division of like 30 million engineers making all the apps for 6 billion people? How do we get to the next 30 million? And is there another way than teaching them all how to program? Wow, that sounds like a really big challenge. And when you put it, when you frame it that way, it does seem like it's very disproportionate that only a relatively small percentage of people are designing and developing the tools that everybody will be using. Yeah, I think I think there's um, it's evident. It's pretty evident to me that will change. There'll be a pretty big if when it changes, will be a pretty big revolution in like how people will use computers because. Um, how do I put this? I think some people have seen the internet being a more creative place than it is now. And I think that will be a great side effect from allowing more and weirder people to express ideas on computers because you'll get more weird stuff. And I think that can make the internet a way better place. Mm-hmm. You had, a, had said at the beginning of, the, of our conversation that you're not so good at doing the media thing. So if somebody wanted to, if somebody is listening to this and they're really inspired by your story, and they they want to get into programming, then this is the moment for them. What are some places where they can go and find out more information? You said you had written a bunch of books on this stuff. Where do people find out more information about you and what you're doing? Um, yeah, I'm not super interesting to be honest. So, um, <laughs> I mean, this is this is. I hope that people make it all the way through here because then they obviously think I'm interesting enough to listen for, for, for like however short this interview will be mm-hmm. after you edit it. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, that I think the interesting stuff that we're we're doing or that's happening around like being able to push people and what they can make is, uh, I mean, like framework.com is like a good place to find all the stuff that we're putting out. But there's a bunch of other interesting stuff happening. And so if you follow us on Twitter, we're also pretty good at like pointing at some of these things or just follow me um, and I, I and you can find like if you're interested in this stuff generally how we push the boundaries of what people can creatively make with computers um, then it should be pretty easy to kind of figure out like what I'm thinking about mm-hmm. um, and and who I'm looking at for the next steps to take besides us obviously um, so the books and stuff um, I publish uh, also on the framer.com just under the learning materials I wrote this huge book on how to think about React for uh, designers. And I think it's a really good approach, but there's so much really good material around that, uh, you know, like to learn about React or component systems in general, because that's maybe a little bit more what it's about, sort of like the building blocks that, that allow you to create these these, these new things. Um, yeah, so so I would encourage everybody to check that out if you're okay. interested. And, and there's like a long tail of really cool things to figure out from amazing people like the Brett Victors that do really great talks all the way to research from the 70s around small talk. Um, that kind of is uh, predicting some of the things that we, we should have had by now mm-hmm. for being able to express this that we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and all these things kind of like come together in, in, in I think what we are trying to do and some other companies are trying to do to push this forward. Mm. And what is your Twitter handle? Kunbok, just my name. Okay. 
<laughs> you're supposed to say that like your media person is like oh, you're supposed to mention that okay so uh i, so, I thank yeah. you for for being so open and transparent and sharing your stories uh, i i really enjoy just kind of going back in time with you for a little bit to kind of see the person before they were the person right so uh, on behalf of my entire team all the designers out there who are interested in developing and designing for the future and apps and web uh, i just want to applaud you for doing what you're doing and to encourage you because Having really great prototyping tools and being able to just having another tool in your arsenal to be able to articulate your thinking and to to get really good feedback really quickly is so so important. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. Hi, my name is Kuhn and you're listening to the future. Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.